I just wanted to throw this up as a disclaimer. There's a lot out there. I'm sorry, I haven't slept a lot because of preparing, and so now I'm starting to lose my voice and get a little cold. So, um, but it's all totally worth it. Um, these are my sources. I just there's a lot of information out there um, on this topic, and sometimes you get a topic and it's like there's nothing out there. But this one, there is a lot on it. Um, so I wanted to make a disclaimer that like I stole a bunch of stuff and mostly stole it from these people. So if it doesn't sound like something I would have said, it's probably because I stole it from them. Um, yeah, so if you want to take a picture or write it down or whatever, we can maybe put it up at the end if anybody wants it. But these were like so phenomenal, like so, so phenomenal. I don't know who this pastor guy is of the last one, but wow, he rocked it. Um, okay, so. Oh, I need the clicker. I'm so sorry, you guys. You can go to the first slide if you want to, but I'm kind of a control freak, so if I could get the clicker, I would love to <laughs> click it myself. Huh? Oh, can you go back to the sources one they're asking? Yeah. And there's more, but these were, these were the ones that God brought to me. Um, and supposedly when I practice this, I'm way under time, so this is okay, but that's hard to believe because I'm so long-winded normally. I listened, like I said, to a lot of different things, and one thing I listened to was a sermon by um, Alistair Begg on the topic uh, at hand today. And the amazing thing is, as amazing a theologian as he is, I didn't walk away with stuff that I put in here, like in the body of what I was talking about, but it gave me the total framework of how to start what he said. Because what he said to the listener is that um, we should not, that, that the Bible is not a self-help book. It is God's story. So when we approach it, we should not always be coming to it to look for life application. We should come to the reading of scripture to learn more about God. And that just, wow. Um, it struck me and it, like I said, it, it gave the complete framework um, for what I wanted to do today. Um, this pastor, Mark, I'm going to try, I only have to say it once, Vrogop um, from Indiana says it really well. Um, you will miss the ultimate story and the beauty of the Exodus and even the Bible if you do not see that God's purpose in everything he does is to display the beauty of who he is. Creation, redemption, judgment, mercy, grace, wrath, and deliverance are not individual themes. They are like a string of pearls, which are intended to be put together to make much of God. I just love that last thing, to make much of God. Um, and I believe as we know more about God and his glory is revealed to us, the whole of scripture will be more applicable to our lives as we are drawn to him. So it all works out. It's just the way we approach God's word, approach it looking for him. So we're going to do that. <laughs> we're going to look at our section of scripture um, and ask some questions to learn more about God. And you might have, if you read this, you realize that early on in um, the chapters that we're reading, Pharaoh asks in a very prideful, disrespectful way what is actually a really, really good question that I think all of our hearts could ask. So what I'd like to do today is to humbly, respectfully, and without Pharaoh's attitude, ask Pharaoh's question. Who is the Lord? And let these chapters of Exodus tell us something about God and help us to discover the Lamb. So God answers this question of who is the Lord succinctly in Exodus 6, 6 through 8. 
by telling Moses what he will do, and then we see things play out in more detail after that. So I've highlighted here some of the things. God says, I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. I will bring you to the land I swore to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. So what do these verses tell us about God? I mean, you kind of get it, but let's just, in summary, it tells us that he frees his people from bondage. He ransoms his people through judgment. He adopts people as his own. He keeps his promises. And we'll see that he, being the same yesterday, today, and always, does all those things for us as well. So let's look at a summary of this week's scripture to understand in more detail who God is. Yeah, it's like the quick fly-through of, you know, three chapters of the Bible, but uh, we'll give it a shot. So Exodus 5 starts with Moses and Aaron telling Pharaoh that the Lord said to let his people go so that they can worship him. This is where Pharaoh's question and his refusal to let the Israelites go comes in. They ask Pharaoh again, but he only gets mad that the Hebrew slaves aren't working hard enough, and he makes their labor harder. Moses then returns to talk to God about this outcome. In chapter 6, God reminds Moses of who he is, like we just read, and what he will do. And God instructs Moses to go back to Pharaoh and tell him to let his people go. In chapter 7 of Exodus, we start to see God do what he said he would do. Moses and Aaron go back to Pharaoh again, and God performs the miracle of turning Aaron's staff into a snake. But Pharaoh hardened his heart, and we know what happens next. It's at this point that God resorts to the plagues to bring, bring deliverance to his people. And I think we can tend to think of the plagues as overly harsh, uh, especially the plague of the firstborn. But we have to remember that this is Yahweh, Jehovah, I am, who is requesting something of a mere man, and that mere man pridefully and stubbornly refuses to obey. God brought order and light to the world in creation. And we have to remember when we step outside of God's design for the universe, we unleash forces of disintegration and chaos, and we step out of his light into darkness. Most of us as parents or aunts or nannies or grandmas or babysitters would not tolerate a child speaking to us like Pharaoh spoke, essentially, to God. Um, but fortunately, God is more patient than I am, that I ever was as a mom. And he gives Pharaoh's, Pharaoh many chances to change his mind. And this reminds me of a scripture God keeps bringing to me for the last few weeks, which is 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But Pharaoh doesn't repent. He doesn't obey. So it is time for God to act. The oppressor of his people is unyielding and unrepentant, so God will move to save his people through his judgment, handed down on Pharaoh, the Egyptians, and the Egyptian gods. And this brings us up to another theme that in Nancy Guthrie and most commentators I found, it wasn't just Nancy, but over and over again, I kept seeing this theme that was pointed out. And it's the idea that God always brings salvation through judgment. I had never seen it that way before. 
We'll see more about it, this later. It will play out. But for now, just suffice to say that this is the case. And God has every right to judge. We don't, <laughs> although we do it a lot. But God has every right to judge because he is the God of the universe who is perfectly just, righteous, and holy. But we also know that he is loving and compassionate, patient and good. So we will see that his judgment is always tied to mercy and he never judges without a way out. So here comes God's judgment in the form of the 10 plagues in Exodus chapters 7 through 12. I'm assuming you've read these chapters this past week or sometime in your life, maybe even heard about them. If you grew up in the church, you heard about them in Sunday school from when you were tiny. And we were talking about how cool it was to like, when you were little to hear about bugs and crazy things coming out. Um, so I, I'm assuming we're, everybody's somewhat familiar with this, so I don't, with our time constraints and all, I don't, I'm not gonna go through details. But I wanna make you um, aware of one thing that I personally was not aware of until we did our Exodus study a few years back. Um, and that is, that each plague, here's a little chart for you, each plague is a specific targeted judgment against one of the Egyptian gods. And that's all kind of laid out for you there. Um, each of them, each of these plagues was Yahweh making known his supremacy over the Egyptian gods, which had a twofold purpose. It was to make clear to the Egyptians and the whole world God's greatness. And it was to clear the Israelites' minds and hearts of all the pagan gods and practices that they had been exposed to and living under for more than 400 years. I wanna pause here to make a brief statement about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. I know we discussed it in our group. I have a feeling it was probably discussed in most groups um, because it's something people really wonder about. Um, it seems unfair to us that God would harden Pharaoh's heart and then make Pharaoh pay for that. That just doesn't make sense to us. But we have to go back and remember that Pharaoh, and I'm sure there's more to this. You know, if I was a theologian, I could probably bring you more to this. But the things that came to me, that God brought to me in this, were that um, Pharaoh was given a chance way back in chapter 5, at the very beginning, the very first verse and second verse of chapter 5, to let the Israelites go. But instead, he mocked God and oppressed God's people more. It wasn't until after this that God told Moses he would pronounce judgment and would harden Pharaoh's heart. God knows a man's heart, and he knew that Pharaoh's heart was unyielding, even before Pharaoh spoke. So God determined to free his people, but also to use Pharaoh's hardened heart to his glory. In Exodus 9:16, God says, I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Way back in, I mean, not way back, but way back for us, forward from this, but way back for us. And Daniel, um, Daniel tells us that God raises up and takes down leaders. Well, here God is, is telling us that. I have raised you up. So he put that Pharaoh in position for that time that he could show Pharaoh his power and that God's name would be proclaimed in all the earth. And this reminds me of what Joseph said to his brothers in Genesis 50:20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And doesn't that apply here, right? That God will be saving so many lives through what, through Pharaoh's actions that were really intended to harm God's people, but God will use it for good to accomplish the saving of lives. Everything God does is for the purpose of the display of his glory. But why is that? 
well, first of all, we have a hard time with this also, I think because we think of it in human terms and we think if I was all about my only purpose in life was to bring about my glory, that would be super selfish and self-centered and really inappropriate. Um, but when God does it, it's because he and he alone deserves it. It's not, you can't think of it in our terms. It is, it's also because it is good for us as it draws us to God to, in awe of him and to trusting him more. Pharaoh's question and the attitude of his heart flaunt his fundamental unwillingness to acknowledge, acknowledge this all-powerful God. And so the plagues ensue. The one plague we will be spending time looking at, obviously, um, is the plague of the firstborn, in which God institutes the Passover. In this plague, God will strike down every firstborn in all of Egypt. This is divine judgment, a temporary, preliminary, devastating judgment day. This is not just the chaos and disintegration of separating from the order of God's creation. This is the destroyer, with a capital D, who is an angel that brings calamity and death to mankind. And God instructs the people that they are to protect themselves, the firstborn, from death, from the destroyer. How? With a lamb. Tim Keller says this really well, as he, he always does say everything so well. Um, God says to the Israelites, I am going to unleash the most inexorable, irresistible, unstoppable force in the universe. It is going to go through the greatest military and political power that the world has ever seen, like a hot knife through butter. And there is only one thing that will protect you from this force, a lamb. This seems crazy to us, right? Like we picture a little fluffy, cute, meek lamb. When I search images of that, on the, uh, they're so sweet. They're so cute. And if anybody, I don't know if anybody has them. The lynches do, yeah, used to. If you have those in your yard or your neighbors do, they're so cute and sweet, right? But they're supposed to protect us from this. What we have to do is put this into the context of the story of the lamb that is woven throughout the Bible. As we look at this story, we will answer our other question, who is the lamb? The story of the lamb starts in Genesis 4-4, when Abel, a shepherd, brought the best of his firstborn lambs from his flock. He brought it to God, and God accepted his gift, but did not accept the vegetable gift of his brother Cain. Likely, this was in part due to it, it demonstrating Abel's faith, and also because it offered up the life of the lamb, the innocent victim which acknowledged that Abel's life was due for sin. In other words, there must be a payment for sin. And those verses in Leviticus and Hebrews talk about there needing to be blood for there to be forgiveness because there's life in the blood. The story of the lamb then continues in Genesis 22 when Abraham is asked by God to sacrifice his firstborn son, Isaac. And we studied this last semester. Remember, Isaac himself sees that they have all the things they need, the fire and the knife and all those things, to make a sacrifice except the lamb, the actual sacrifice. So his father Abraham reassures Isaac that God himself would provide a lamb. We all remember that the angel of the Lord stops Abraham from killing Isaac right at the last minute. Abraham then sees a ram with its horns stuck in a thicket, and they sacrifice it. But this is not a lamb. I forever thought, oh, there's the lamb. Abraham was right. It's not a lamb, but Abraham's not wrong. The ram is actually thought by most commentators to be a thank offering. But what Abraham demonstrates here is his deep trust of God's promise, 
that a savior would come from his descendants, the promised one. So Abraham was right. God would provide the lamb, just not that day. Then the story of the lamb continues in Exodus 12 at the first Passover where we are this week. Let's look at some of God's instructions for the Israelites in regards to the lamb. And we're going to look at a bunch of these. We're going to spend some time over and over looking at different instructions. And I think sometimes these can feel burdensome um, to people. Um, but it's funny, I think about it because growing up, my dad, um, when he would get a gift at you know, Father's Day, birthday, Christmas, whatever, he would open it and he was, a, you know, before there were techies, he was a techie and a mathematician, all this kind of stuff. So he got these really cool gifts. But what he would do first and what he insisted we would do, which is so hard at Christmas, was to take out the instructions and read them. He loved reading the instructions, and we would joke that the instructions were actually the gift to my dad, like he just enjoyed it so much, but it was so hard as a kid to stop and read the instructions first. Um, so I think, um, partially maybe because I'm my father's daughter a little bit, um, that actually for me, I, like if I put myself in the place of the Israelites, these instructions are a gift to me. They feel, they feel like they clear things up. I know exactly what I'm supposed to do. Um, so let's try to see God's instructions as a sweet gift um, rather than, than burdensome. Um, so let's look at God's first set of instructions about the lamb. Um, as with all of God's instructions, these have been given with great purpose and have very specific meaning, as I hope you discovered during your, your time looking at these passages this week on your own or in your group. Um, the Passover lamb foretells so clearly of the coming Messiah. And I feel like one of God's motives in giving such specific instructions was likely so that his people would recognize the Messiah when he came. So let's look at these. The lamb must be a one-year-old male. So it must be male and it must be one-year-old. It must be without defect. And none of its bones are to be broken. That first Passover night, the Israelites were saved from physical death, not because of their ethnicity or anything they had done to earn being saved but because of the blood of the lamb. In fact, in Exodus 12, 22 to 23, we see that they are no better than the Egyptians. Here, Moses tells them not to step out of their houses where the blood of the lamb has been painted on the doorframe. Because if they stay inside under the blood of the lamb, the destroyer will not be allowed to enter their homes and strike them down. If they are not, however, covered by the blood of the lamb, they will be killed just like the Egyptians. So while they were saved from death and released from physical bondage at that first Passover, the Israelites still lived with a debt of sin and a need for deliverance from spiritual bondage. The story of the lamb continues through the Old Testament as the Israelites continue to sacrifice lambs as an atonement for their sins. And I put just one reference here um, when they did it morning and night uh, for tabernacle sacrifice, but obviously it goes on even beyond that. The next major chapter in the story of the lamb comes after centuries of this practice of sacrificing lambs and begins as John the Baptist introduces us to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We know from our study of the scriptures this week that Jesus is the perfect Passover lamb. And since you hopefully covered this, the comparison between the Passover lamb and Jesus, um, that one of Nancy Guthrie's charts, and you probably either did that in your homework or maybe talked about it in your group, um, I'm just going to kind of breeze through it, just sort of show you to you and show you some of the references I got, which are mostly the same as hers. So let's look again at God's instructions to the Israelites in regards to the lamb and see how Jesus fulfilled them. Um, Jesus fulfills each one of these things perfectly. Um, he obviously was a man, 
and he was in the prime of his life, which is what a one-year-old lamb is. And Jesus was perfect without blemish. And one of the really cool things that it's just it's foretold so much, so much prophecy about this, but Je none of Jesus' bones were broken, which was very unusual during a crucifixion. But there's one major difference between Jesus and the lamb from Passover. And that is that Jesus was not a helpless victim. He willingly laid down his life. He laid down his life and was crucified and took on all of our sins, past, present, and future. God's judgment that belonged to us was laid on him. And again, we see that God's salvation comes through judgment as we hear Jesus crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me from the cross? So let's look at more of Jesus, our Passover lamb. We're going to look at more of instruction, God's instructions so we can see more things about Jesus and how he fulfills it. So these instructions are, have to do with when the lamb was to be chosen, how big it should be, when it was to be sacrificed, the spreading of the blood on the lintel and the doorposts, how much of the meat should be eaten, or how the meat should be cooked, sorry, how much of it should be eaten, that, that the Israelites should stay in their homes, and instructions for any foreigners living among them. And these are also all perfectly fulfilled by Jesus. Jesus arrived in Jerusalem at the triumphal entry on the 10th day, which is the day that they were to pick out the lamb. And he was killed on the 14th day. He was a perfectly sufficient sacrifice. No more was needed and no less would be enough. And we have the same visual of blood on wood at the Passover as we do at the crucifixion on the cross. Also, this passage in John, which you may have read in the past and seems sort of odd to us, makes a lot more sense. This passage about eating the flesh of the Son of Man, it makes more sense when we read it in the context of the Passover lamb. Jesus' perfect righteousness was totally consumed by our sin. And Jesus came not only to save the Jewish people, but to save the Gentiles as well. So there's provision for the foreigners. But let's go back before Jesus was crucified for a minute um, to the night before. And what did he do that night? You know, he celebrated the Passover. And at the Passover meal, most of you know, there's always someone, usually the father, who presides over the meal and introduces each of the elements and explains their meaning. Jesus takes on this role with the disciples as he celebrates it. But when he gets to the bread, instead of saying, this is the bread of affliction, as the presider would normally have said for centuries of Passover celebrations, he says, Jesus says, this is my body given for you. In other words, the affliction will now be on him. And we talked about this in our group. It was a great discussion. Jesus then takes one of the four cups of wine that are traditionally at a Passover meal. It's thought that this was the third cup, known as the cup of redemption. And he says, this is the... This cup is the new covenant in my blood, indicating that he will redeem all mankind and establish a new covenant by the spilling of his blood. And then he instructed his disciples to do this in remembrance of him, thus establishing a revised Passover, the Lord's Supper, for his followers to celebrate. So why does Jesus tell us to do this in remembrance of him? To understand, let's look back again at more instructions that God have for the Passover to compare them to this revised Passover. Ooh, sorry, I don't know what's going on there. Huh. More instructions from God about the Passover is what that's supposed to say. From these instructions, we can see that the Passover was a life-defining event. It was observed in community. 
it was filled with faith, and it was celebrated in anticipation. So how does this compare, compare to the Lord's Supper as is instituted by Jesus? The Passover was so important that God has the Israelites reorient their calendar so it would be the first thing they did every year. And what happens um, when Jesus is crucified is even more life-defining. Turning to Jesus and trusting that his death and resurrection provide our deliverance from sin is transformative. It reorients everything. Get the second one. Although choosing, sacrificing, roasting, and eating the Passover lamb was done in the individual homes, it was done corporately by all the Israelites at the same time. And while we can celebrate communion by ourselves, it is intended to be done together as Paul instructed the Corinthians. Looking at the third one, when the Israelites were given God's instructions by Moses, they bowed and worshipped him and then did exactly what he told them, including painting their door frames with the lamb's blood. But this blood was only a symbol of their faith. God knew whose hearts had trusted him. God didn't actually need blood out there to go, oh, oh, that family. God knew. Um, but as one commentator put it, the blood on the doorposts showed acceptance of God's plan for rescue and trust in his word. The wine and the bread and the Lord's Supper are just symbols also, but they represent what it means to place one's faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And the last point, the Israelites were instructed to eat with their belt fastened, their sandals on, their feet, oh, with their sandals on their feet and their staff in their hand. These are things you do when you're preparing to travel. This was not how they normally ate a meal. So the meal they ate this way marked the beginning of a journey. And they likely lived in great anticipation of this journey as it was to lead them out of Egypt and into the promised land. Jesus tells his disciples, I will not drink again of the fruits of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And Paul says, For as often as you eat of this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we who partake of the Lord's Supper eat while we anticipate Jesus' second coming. And this ushers us into the final chapter of the story of the Lamb. In Revelation, John tells us he saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. And this lamb is referred to also as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Do you remember that from last semester? The root of David. And we are told that because the lamb has triumphed, he is worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. And this is because he was slain, and with his blood, he purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and nation. He has made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve God. And this is our Jesus, the perfect spotless Passover lamb again. He and he alone is worthy. So this scroll seems like a pretty big deal, right? If someone has to be worthy to open it and if only Jesus is worthy. So let's look at the importance of the scroll for a moment. Sorry, my glasses keep knocking this thing out. Um, so first, the opening of the scroll ultimately brings about the outworking of unfulfilled promises of the new covenant when the Jewish people will come to a saving knowledge of Jesus as their savior. And secondly, by opening the scroll, the lamb takes as his inheritance that which he had already purchased, an unending kingdom and the title deed to earth. This is the beginning of the reclamation of the earth in preparation for God's direct rule. And thirdly, when the lamb breaks the seals, it is not merely a disclosure of the scroll's contents, but an activation of those contents. 
which includes the bowls of judgment that you can read about in Revelation 16. These mirror but are much worse than the judgment God passed on Egypt. Once these judgments are passed, God's wrath against sin will be complete. There will be no more mourning or weeping because the evil one will have been destroyed once and for all and sin and death will be no more. And so it is, again, ultimate salvation through final judgment. As we close, let's take a look one last time at our original question. Who is the Lord? He is a God who frees his people from bondage. For the Israelites, it was a physical bondage as slaves in Egypt. And for the world, it is bondage to sin that he has freed us from. He ransoms his people. We have seen throughout scripture that God saves through judgment that is tied to mercy. He adopts people as his own. The Israelites became inexorably tied to God through the Passover. And we are adopted as his sons and daughters through Jesus' death and resurrection. And God keeps his promises. God delivered the Israelites as he said he would, which kept his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he keeps his promises to us too. God did all of this for Israel in the Exodus. He did it through Jesus at Calvary. And he will do it again in the consummation of history in the end times. And who is the lamb? He is the one whose story runs like a thread through the whole of scripture. And through him, God makes all of this possible. We've already talked about the fact that the Lord's Supper, like Passover, is designed to be a corporate event. It is a memorial that unites us under the banner of the Lamb of God. And so with that in mind, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together as we praise Jesus as the Lamb who is worthy. <laughs>